Well, I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles now as we look into the Word of God. Romans chapter 9. We have been back into the book of Romans in this uh, pivotal chapter here as Paul begins a section on Israel and the future of Israel as a people, their spiritual heritage and their promises that have been given to them. In chapter 9 of the book of Romans, Paul's Expression at the beginning of Romans chapter 9 is for his sorrow, his deep sorrow for the people of Israel, that they come to know Christ. And his heart there is that he would want to give his own life, that his own brethren might be saved. And we begin and we will read again from verse 6 onward. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac, your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those people who are not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the seas, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. 
And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabbath had left us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What shall we say then? The Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay a Zion, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's go before the Lord and ask him for his wisdom and help. Our Father in heaven, we look to you and bow before your throne. It is you that grants understanding, knowledge, and wisdom, just as you did in the days of Daniel, as you granted to them insight and understanding of the times in which they lived. You granted to those young men knowledge well beyond their years. So, Father, as we tackle this passage, which is difficult, perhaps more difficult to to accept than it is to understand, we pray, O God, that you would enlighten our minds and fill us with your spirit. In Jesus' precious name, amen. I received a letter. It's a newsletter a couple of months ago from Grace to You, telling of a story of two people named John and Nora Romanowski. The letter reads as follows, quote, John and Nora Romanowski faithfully served the Lord at a Bible church in Utah where they reached Mormons with the gospel. They had three children, two daughters and a son. In the summer of 1986, they came to California to enroll their eldest daughter at the Master's College and to visit Grace Community Church where I serve as pastor. The road trip was going to be a highlight for them, a welcome and much needed break from their difficult ministry. But John and Nora were thoroughly evangelistic, and they brought along two Italian foreign exchange students with them. Neither of the young men were believers, and John and Nora knew there would be many opportunities to present Christ to them on the trip. So they packed up everyone and headed to California. They registered their daughter on a Saturday and took some time to look around and get acquainted with the campus. Their second daughter also planned to attend in another year or two, so they wanted to be thoroughly familiar with the school and campus. It was a happy day, and they all looked forward to visiting Grace Church the following morning. But as they drove away from the college and headed out to the main highway, their car was broadsided at an intersection by a large van traveling at full speed. The force of the impact catapulted the two girls out of the back of the car instantly killing both of them. The mangled vehicle quickly ignited and all three boys sustained severe injuries, had to be rushed to the hospital. The van struck them on the driver's side of the car just behind the front seat. John and Nora were spared the force of the full impact. Oh, they were, they were banged around and had several superficial injuries. The whole gruesome scene played out less than a mile down the road from the college It wasn't long before I heard about the accident and hurried to be with John and Nora at the hospital. I'll never forget the conversation we had as we waited for the news about the three boys. 
John and Nora were utterly shattered by the loss, of course. Their shock and grief they sustained that day were as profound as anyone could imagine. The anguish I felt just as a friend and fellow pastor was agonizing. I could only imagine their pain as parents. I didn't think there was much I could say that would bring either of them any real relief. But John's response to the whole situation encouraged and amazed even me. He said, quote, My sweeping thought is this. Isn't God good? That he took my two daughters who knew Christ and loved Christ and spared these two Italian boys who are not saved? Isn't God good? Most people, I would guess, probably have cried out as to how unfair God would be. Is God really just to take the life of two Christian kids from a good Christian family who had their future in front of them? Some would be angry at God for doing such a thing, bitter against God, or even walked away from God saying, God, how could you have done something like that? And yet John's response, the Romanovskis, as a father who had lost his two daughters, showed not only his relationship with God, but his perspective from a godly viewpoint. How he saw things through the eyes of God. That by the grace of God, he spared those who were destined to spend eternity away from God. And took those who were destined to heaven home at that time. For those who believe that God is sovereign, there is the great comfort in knowing that God is somehow still in and always shall be in control. Even in times of tragedy. And here in this particular text, Paul lays out the argument for the complete sovereignty of God. That God is God and He will do what He chooses to do. Whether it is showing mercy, as in the case of Moses and the Israelites, or whether it is executing judgment, God still has that very right because God is our God and God is the Creator by which He is worshipped by the angels in the book of Revelation. And Paul argues for that, that God is a just God and God is a righteous God, nor does he need to answer to us. And last week when we looked at the chapter, chapter 9 in the beginning, Paul expresses, as I mentioned, his sorrow, his sorrow for Israel because of their, of their abandonment of God as a nation. They had not turned to God. In fact, they said, well, all of history, no Jews have recognized Jesus as Savior. And if Jews haven't recognized as Jesus as Savior or the Messiah, and if we are the chosen people, then wouldn't God want us to know that Jesus was the Messiah? Have the promises of God failed then? Now, Jesus and the Messiah, that's what the Jews would say. And Paul begins a question and answer type of a rhetoric in which he says, no. Verse 6, the promises of God haven't failed. Why? Because all that God had called in Israel are not simply physical descendants of Israel. And he gives two examples. The example of, well, Abraham, his promised seed was through Isaac, even though there was Ishmael and he had six other kids through Keturah. Then, not only was it through Isaac, but Isaac had children too. Esau and Jacob, and the promise came through Jacob. 
So not all descendants, because the Jews would say, we are children of Abraham. Abraham was considered the father of Israel. Because they felt that they were of physical lineage through Abraham, they thought, we are the children, the chosen people, and I am part of the family of God, simply because I was born into it. And Paul says, no. Only those who are children of God are children of the promise and are spiritual children as he continues on to argue. In fact, he says in verse 11 regarding the two twins, Jacob and Esau, even before they were born, God chose one of them to serve the other, not because of works, but that his choice might stand. The older will serve the younger. It is by God's decree. Well, that brings up an intuitive question in verse 14. What are we going to say then? Isn't God unfair? May it never be, Paul says. Is God unfair? The answer is no. Why? Because God is just. God is a just God. And Paul argues from the point of sovereignty. That is what we talked about last time. You see, justice is defined not by what we understand as just, but by God Himself. And Paul argues from that point. He continues with two particular, two particular examples. One is God shows His justice through His mercy upon Israel when they abandoned God at Mount Sinai. And they made a golden calf to worship. And God chose to what? only pour out his judgment on 3,000 of them. It was an act of mercy that he left the rest of them alive. Or was it his judgment upon Pharaoh? His judgment upon Pharaoh so that his name might be made known upon the earth. He raised up Pharaoh for that purpose and we finished at that point last time. But then it comes into this objection, that intuitive question that we ask, How can God fault us then if we don't have a choice? Verse 19. How will you say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? Now it's fascinating the answer that Paul gives in this particular passage. Because Paul answers back and it's notable that Paul doesn't answer with a philosophical or a theological reason. You see, you understand the question. If, if, if God chose, for example, uh, Jacob and Esau, chose one of them to serve the other, even before they were born, as it says in verse 14, who, who resists his will? How can he possibly fault Esau if Esau never had the opportunity or whatnot? How can he fault him? And that Paul doesn't give a philosophical or theological answer to this particular question. What, what Paul does is he appeals to the sovereign hand of God. He appeals to the sovereign hand of God that God has the very right to do so. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? In other words, we as small humans, is it all right to question the God of the universe and say, why did you make me like this? The metaphor is that we are the clay. God has every right to do as he wishes. This particular metaphor isn't the only place that it was expressed in Jeremiah. God spoke through him in chapter 18, verse 3. It says, then I went down. 
to the potter's house, and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel and it pleased the pot, as it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Isaiah says something similar when he says in Isaiah 64, 6 to 8, But now, O Lord, Thou art our Father, we are the clay, and Thou art potter, and all of us are the work of Thy hand. In other words, Paul's answer to this particular question is, Who are we to question the sovereign hand of God? And, he pre- and the presupposition is that God is sovereign. And the understanding of Paul is that God is sovereign. Who is it that we are to question the hand of God? But one of the common objections is this. The common objections against the sovereignty of God is, do we truly, well, how can we possibly have a free choice or a free will? If we don't have a free choice, then do we or what not? And the answer lies in the question itself. We really don't have a free choice, or the, let me explain it this way. The answer lies in the false assumption that for a choice to be made, it must be made freely. What do you mean by freely? It must be made, one would argue, free outside of any influence or compulsion. Do we have a choice that is truly free, that we are never without any influence or compulsion? exterior or interior that's the false assumption in the question itself that a choice to be a true choice must be without compulsion or influence and the reason why it's a false assumption is because in the scriptures it never portrays us as people as people who are free from any influence or compulsion since we were born we have been influenced the scripture says we were born into sin We had a sinful inclination. We were compelled and lived in the lust of our eyes, the lust of our flesh, and the boastful pride of life. We were children of wrath. We were fighting against God. Ephesians 2, we were children of wrath, people who were were against God. We don't come into this world with a neutral position where we are free from any influence or, or any inclination. Our inclination is to sin. In fact, the book of Romans, when we've come up to this point, Romans 6, 7, 8, it tells us that we are what? We are slaves to what? Slaves to sin. Our will is to serve and to do what we want to do. Serve ourselves. We are our God or we choose a God, but not God, the God of heaven. And so our choice then is a choice, it's a reality of a choice, but even then it is influenced even by our sin at that time throughout life until we come to a point where God frees us from that bondage of sin. So, when we talk about a free choice, a free will, it must be defined by how the scriptures paint us and how the scriptures define who we are. The scriptures say we are, in, we are in bondage to sin. We were born into sin and sin lives in our heart. Jeremiah says, what? Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all else 
Who can know it? We are so influenced by sin to do what? To not choose God. And for us, though, as we live through life, we make choices and they are very real choices to us. They're very real choices to us. So a choice is a choice, even if it is influenced for good by God or for evil by our own sin. It is still a choice. A choice isn't a real choice such that, well, there's absolutely absolute neutrality in one's heart. Because no one ever comes to God as a neutral individual making a choice between good and evil. They are inclined to sin. That is what the scriptures paint us as. So we then we ask, well, if God is sovereign, then how come there is sin in the world? Someone asked me that just a couple of weeks ago. And Paul gives a partial reason to that in verse 22. He says, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known? These are the two reasons. God allowed sin to enter into the world for two particular reasons here, though not perhaps all of the reasons. One, to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known. Just as in the case of Pharaoh, God is glorified in the display of his mercy upon Israel as well as his justice upon Pharaoh. He has every right to do so. But then we come to the rest of verse 22, which is often a question that is asked. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God did so, prepared for destruction, and he endured with much patience those things and he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory even us whom he also called not from among Jews only but also from among Gentiles now this particular verse appears to communicate that God prepares some people for destruction and others uh, from for destruction and others for eternal life Is that what it means? Is that how it speaks? Is that how it reads? And this is where grammar comes into play. Verb tenses are notably important. The verse that reads that some people are vessels of wrath or prepared for destruction. Others are vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. It's important to look at how how those play out and the words are there. In the Greek language, just as in many languages, there is the active Voice and there is the passive voice of the verbs. The verb in the phrase, vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, is an active verb in which God is identified as the subject which does the activity. It is an active verb in which God is the subject of that particular activity. God prepared, it says, he, or he prepared people, or what we would call elected or predestined for glory. He prepared them before. He was active in doing so, in electing, predestining. We learned about that. We saw it in Ephesians chapter 1, as well as earlier in the book of Romans. He prepared people. He was active in doing so. But the verb in the phrase, prepared for destruction, is a passive verb. God is not identified as the subject. 
God is not identified as a subject. Some vessels were prepared for destruction. So we are left to know, well, how were they prepared or who prepared them? The virtue of people, we know, we know that the virtue of people is to what? Sin against God. It is because of our sinfulness and what we are. We were born into sin. Our inclination is to sin against God. We were prepared. We were prepared due to our own choice to sin against God and our own destruction. God is removed in that sentence one step away from our sin. God is not the author of sin. People are. And the Bible paints us as people who are responsible for our sin, responsible for our actions. For example, when we look into John chapter 8, we looked at a number of passages last week. We look at John chapter 8. When Jesus speaks here, whom does he place the responsibility on for sin? John chapter 8, verse 43. John chapter 8, verse 43. Jesus here is speaking to the Jews. And he says to these Jews, why do you not understand what I say? Why do you not understand what I say? And he says to them, it is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of the father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desire. Jesus points to them as culpable as those who are responsible for their sin. He says so again in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. How often, he says, would I have gathered your children together? As he looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. And he says, and you would not. He also says in John 5, verse 40, You refuse to come to me that you may have life. You refuse to come to me that you may have life. And in fact, when we began the book of Romans, it talked about the subject of general revelation, where all of creation testifies of God. And what does it say in Romans chapter 1, verse 20? It says, all of humanity is without excuse. Now, theologians in the, in the Augustinian times, medieval times, tried to differentiate what they call primary and secondary causes. Removing God one step away. Removing God one step away by designating God as the primary cause and his, his uh, people or the creation as the secondary cause. Such that God would be removed from sin. For example, in the book of Exodus, it talks about the parting of the Red Sea. And it says that the east wind came and blew the water the waters and separated them so that the people of Israel could escape from Pharaoh and walk through the Red Sea. Yet who was it that separated the Red Sea? It was God. One would designate then the primary cause as God, the secondary cause as the wind which blew the waters to separate them so that there was dry ground. And in the same way, there's a, there's a separation of God from being the author of sin by one step. Here where God is not indicated as the one who is, who is the, the secondary cause for these individuals who were prepared for destruction. And yet, the active sense of the verb in those who are prepared for eternal life are. In the Bible, you see there are two caricatures of God in relation to salvation. One, that the blessings of salvation 
are always attributed to God. Whereas, too, the responsibility for their sin and its consequences, even by Jesus in these passages in the New Testament, are put upon people. Now, some people have used a theological term, particularly in this passage, to refer to this type of thing as double predestination. To refer to this passage as God designates some to eternal salvation and some to eternal condemnation. But the Bible doesn't characterize it in those terms. And I'll tell you why. And double predestination, I don't believe, personally would imply that. And I don't think that it's an accurate term. And I'll tell you why. It's because it would imply that God does. God does the act of salvation in the same manner for both cases. Those who would be saved and those who wouldn't be saved. Double predestination would say, well, God predestines and elects these people to go to heaven. Whereas these people, he points to and says, these go to hell. That he's active in the same way. But the characterization in the scriptures speak of these activities in two different ways. In choosing some to be saved, or what we would call election, the cause is God directly attributed to him as the first and secondary causes of who, who is the cause of, of their, their, their salvation, from his foreknowledge to his predestination, to his calling, to his drawing, to their justification, to their sanctification, to their glorification. In the entire process of salvation, God is given the credit and is the cause and he is so motivated that we see in Ephesians 1, he is motivated because of his love. It says he predestined us. And the basis or the grounds of that is his grace. In not choosing some, not choosing some to be saved or what we would call the doctrine of reprobation, the cause of Mankind's destiny, those who would turn against God in the scriptures, is laid squarely upon the shoulders of sinful people, of their decision not to repent, not to turn to God, and God justly passes over them in sorrow. And that is how it characterizes God. God passes over them in sorrow, not in joy or indifference. And the grounds of that is not His grace, but the grounds of it, Him doing so is His justice. For those who would feel that perhaps this is unfair for God to elect or predestine, Mark Webb in his article in Reformation and Revival pictures it quite nicely when he gives the illustration that people have. He says it's a false illustration that when people say, well, it's not fair, they're picturing all of these people clamoring and knocking on the doors of heaven which are closed and maybe the old joke that St. Peter comes out and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? As if these throngs of people want to get into heaven but God can't and what God does is he says, you can come in, you can come in, no, you can't come in, you can come in, you can't come in. So that's not how the picture is, especially when you read the scriptures. The picture of it is that God has opened the door to heaven and invites everyone to come, but all of humanity is running as fast away as they can in rebellion against God. They hate God. They want to run against God. They don't seek God. Romans 3 tells us no one seeks God. And there's a sin. They want to live for themselves. And yet God in His love and His grace 
they are running towards hell and he reaches out and saves this one and he saves that one and he brings this one to his fold and he enables these people to respond to his loving grace and he saves them as they are running away and turns their heart and draws them back to himself. That's the picture that scripture gives. In understanding the predestination of the elect and the reprobation of the non-elect, Martin Luther said to his humanist friend Erasmus, quote, Mere human reason can never comprehend how God is good and merciful, and therefore you make yourself a God of your own fancy, who hardens no one, who condemns no one, pities everyone. You cannot comprehend how a just God can condemn those who are born in sin and cannot help themselves, but must, by a necessity of their own natural constitution, continue in sin and remain children of wrath. The answer is, God is incomprehensible throughout, and therefore his justice, as well as his other attributes, must be incomprehensible. It is on this very ground that St. Paul exclaims, Quote, oh, the depth of the riches of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Unquote. Now, his judgment would not be past finding out if we could always perceive them to be just. There will always be some mystery in the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility as the scriptures paint it. There will always be some mystery to the question of how can God place that responsibility of man and his sinfulness when he elects people. And Paul's answer in this particular passage is, what right do we have to expect God to answer to us? For God is God and he is the standard of what is just. In our minds, we may feel there are certain things that don't seem very just. How can God be just? All of those Canaanites that were living in the land of Canaan, and what did God tell Israel to do when they went into the land of Canaan? To kill them all? And yet what? How can that be just? There is some mystery to that. Why God did what he did. Sometimes we feel that certain things are not fair, but God does what he does, and he is the standard of justice. God chose some Because of verse 23, it says that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy. And he gives three Old Testament quotes as we end this particular section. Three Old Testament quotes here through Hosea, again Isaiah, and again in Isaiah. And he gives these quotes to characterize to these Jews who said, is God going to fulfill his promise? first quote tells us that Jew Gentiles or non-Jews would be saved. I will call those people, verse 25, who are not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. The second quote tells us, well, not all Jews, not all Jews, but some will be a remnant. And thirdly, that even though there are a few Jews who will be saved, that if it weren't by God's grace, even upon them, they would have been as Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed. God's grace in the midst of the argument for God's sovereignty is what this whole last section in 30 to 33 is about. God is a gracious God. And when we see the sovereign hand of God move and God saves people, it is by his grace. It is by his grace. 
And the Gentiles were the ones who achieved righteousness, not through doing works, not through all of the activity that the Jews did and doing religious things, but it is by the grace of God, as God saves them and has included them. So, what do we conclude? What do we conclude through this particular section of texts? Number one, some of the observations that are here and important as we understand this particular text is our will is never and has never been completely free. Free outside of any compulsion, free outside of any influence. For since we were born, we were, we were influenced by our sin to be sinful children, sinful babies, influenced by sin such that we call it the doctrine of total depravity. We are inclined to rebel against God. We are inclined to do what we want to do in our own selfishness. Romans tells us we are slaves to sin. The book of Jeremiah tells us that our heart is deceitful. We are either slaves to sin or we are free to Christ as bondservants of Christ. There is nothing such that we have ever truly been free outside of any compulsion. Secondly, we are undeserving. We are undeserving. We don't have rights to salvation, to demand of God. We are all sinners. And a result of our sin, God has every right to take our life even today. If you should so choose to, do we deserve to live another day? If it was by our standard that, well... People ought to come to Christ and have that chance, God. By the time they probably knelt down to pray, maybe a sinful thought would come to their mind, maybe a selfish act, maybe a a word that would be against someone else that would be unkind. And boom, if God executed his judgment right then and there, he'd have every right to. God could and would be fully justified to do with life as he so chooses to. And he would be very just because he is the standard of justice. His holiness is. Thirdly, we are to be grateful. The question is not, why didn't God choose to save that person or choose to save that person? Or why doesn't God save everyone? The question is rather, why does he choose to save anyone? Anyone. Because we're so undeserving to be saved in the first place. Fourthly, we are to accept God's word as defining what is fair and not fair. We are to accept the word of God as defining what is fair and not fair. One of the objections against God's sovereignty, as I mentioned, is the question of God's fairness. But we read in the Old Testament many times in the passage and, and we say, boy, why is that fair? Why didn't God perhaps give them a chance? It doesn't score with my intuitive logic or what I think is right and wrong. And why didn't God do this if God is a whatever God? And our submission, though, is to be to the text of the word of God. Our, our standard of right and wrong is not me and what I think, or my mind and what I determine to be good and right. How do we know the mind of God? We don't know the full picture. We don't know what is in that person's heart. We don't know what it is in those people's hearts in the land of Canaan. We do not know. But God knows. And God is the standard of what is right and wrong. And the question for us is, am I willing to submit to God? And submit to the word of God. 
Am I willing to submit to things that I don't understand? That the Bible teaches that Jesus is God, and yet He is fully man. Yet how do I understand that? I need to accept that. The Bible teaches that God is one God, as it says in Deuteronomy 6, and yet He is three in Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God. And am I willing to submit to that and understand that I cannot understand fully the mind of God? And I'm willing to accept and accept what is the fairness of God as defined by His Word. And lastly, God's sovereign. God is sovereign and does what He will. And His promises never fail. Who are we to expect that God is to answer to us? Because God is a sovereign God and God will do what He will do. And the Bible is filled with promises for you and for I. And, and one of the things that, that is a real tripping point for those who don't ascribe to the sovereignty of God is this area of biblical prophecy. For if God is not sovereign, then there is that minutiae chance that what? Some prophecies might not come to pass. If God is not sovereign, there is no guarantee that much of the book of Revelation will come true. If God is not in control, what about the book of Daniel, which tells us about all of the nations? What would happen, for an example, if the Antichrist, who was born and he decided one day he was going to come out of his house and he slips on the ice, hits his head on the sidewalk and dies? Would there be no Armageddon then? There is a major problem with biblical prophecy for those who don't hold to the sovereignty of God because there is no guarantee that many things that are prophesied in the scriptures will come to pass. So how do we summarize the sovereignty of God and all that happens in the world? In summary, the Bible portrays that when sin occurs, it places the responsibility upon me places the responsibility on me. It is not because of God. God is not the author of sin, nor does He tempt anyone, as James says. When sin occurs, it's because of me. When good occurs, it is because of God who works in and through me. And God is responsible. In salvation, God is completely responsible where He has saved me, has called me, has redeemed me. He has done all of these things for me. And God is God and He is gracious to me. When I rebel against God in my sin, it is because of me and the responsibility is placed upon me. And that is how scriptures portrays us. In both cases, God is good, God is righteous, and God will always be just. And can I accept that? Yes. Why? Because the Bible tells me so. That is how godly people like John and Nora Romanowski can look at a situation and lose their two daughters in an instant when their dreams for the future were there. And yet they rely on the sovereignty of God, that God is a good God, that God is a good God who chooses to what? Redeem and save and chooses to do what He will do with those who rebel against Him. And only faith in a sovereign God will help us to have a godly perspective. Day in and day out, when times are difficult, when times are rough, we believe in a God who will fulfill His promises. And we need to be faithful. Because our choices that we make are very real choices to us. Though influenced, they are very real choices. And our choices need to be that I will follow a faithful Creator because my Creator is God and He is a good God. That I love. Let's pray.
Our Father in heaven, you are a God who we bow to. Your word tells us that you are a good and holy and a righteous God, a God who is just, who is patient, and his loving kindness is everlasting. And so, Father, we trust in that goodness that all that happens will be for our good and for your glory. And may you be honored, even in the understanding of your word. For we pray and ask all of these things. Amen.